Purity Culture, Parenting, and Fear in Media. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week, it's a tour week. I'm traveling all over, and there's not a lot of time to research for the show, so I'm treating this kind of like Ask Science Mike Live. I'm answering all these questions off the top of my head, so what you see in the show notes may actually conflict my answer, which is kind of weird, but whatever. It could be fun. Let's get it started. Well, as most of you probably know, I'm on tour right now to support my new book, Finding God in the Waves, which, by the way, thank you for all of the lovely Amazon reviews. Wow. <laughs> They're uh, really good, really um, encouraging, You know, especially saying that already the book is getting past the podcast audience to new people. Uh, and that's all you. You're, you're the people telling uh, others that the book is out there and they may enjoy it. So thank you for that. And I'd love to see you in person and say thanks. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities uh, because I'm traveling the country right now. And here's the dates I'll be in the next couple of weeks. On Tuesday, September 27th, I'm going to be at Eastern University. uh, That's in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is just outside Philadelphia, for a new Copernican event with my friend John Seal, who's the guy behind the new Copernican's thesis. And uh, actually, Pete Enns, Dr. Peter Enns, more properly, uh, author of some of my favorite books on the Bible, is going to be there, and we're going to do an event together. So really exciting about that. If you're in the Philly area, I'd love to see you on September the 27th. On Friday, September the 30th, I'm going to be at the Y Christian Conference in Chicago. That's sold out, so you, you can't get tickets. But if you're going to Y Christian, I'll be doing a breakout session on Friday. I'd love to see you. Sunday, October the 2nd, just announced this last week, I think, I'm going to be in New York City with uh, Trinity Grace in Tribeca, and I'll be uh, both speaking at their Sunday morning service and then doing a session in the evening on uh, the neuroscience of prayer, uh, which I think will be a lot of fun. Tickets on that are moving pretty fast for that, so I wouldn't wait too long uh, if you're thinking about seeing me in New York to go ahead and secure your ticket. Uh, Friday, the 7th, I'll be doing Ask Science Mike Live in Nashville, and then Friday, 14th, Ask Science Mike Live in Columbus, Ohio. Now, here's the thing about my events. I announce them, and no ticket sale. sales really happen. Very few, like a dozen, you know, 20, 25, something like that. And then we get like, you know, 10 or 12 days from the event, and all of the sudden, tickets start selling really fast. So... One thing I would say is we're going to have tickets for sale at all these events at the door unless they sell out first. Uh, The Liturgist Gathering, for example, in Chicago sold out. Uh, Nashville, more than half the tickets are gone already. Uh, In Columbus, uh, it's a lot bigger venue. So we're even though it's about the same number of tickets, it's less of the capacity of the room. Uh, But I wouldn't wait to get your tickets. I'd go ahead and get them ahead of time. Again, we'll sell them at the door if they're available. Uh, But really, since the book has come out, there's been a surge in ticket sales at all events. Uh, Also, a little bit later, uh, out of this window of uh, just a couple weeks, I'll be in Atlanta. Uh, 
and uh, also Chicago again for the Liturgist Gathering, which, as I mentioned, is completely sold out. There's a wait list. If the events sell out, you can get on a waiting list, and if someone decides they don't want their ticket, then we contact the first person on the waiting list and offer it to them. So I'd love to see you on tour. Of course, there's a lot more stops. This is just the stops in the next two weeks. Uh, so if you'd like to know where all I'm going to be and when, just go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour, which is also where you can go to find links to buy tickets to all of these events. So hopefully I'll see you on the road. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Tony. I live in Bulgaria, and I surely uh, appreciate your show. I listen to it while uh, I'm driving all the time in Bulgaria. And um, my question for you is, I've been back in the United States just for a few weeks in Minnesota where I live, and when I turn on NPR or any different news, it seems as though all I keep hearing about is murders or how North Korea has nukes or uh, how we found uh, the captor of, of Jacob Wetterling uh, and uh, who was abducted. And So as I hear about these things, it seems to me that it portrays this message over and over and over that our world is unsafe. I was wondering if you uh, would, would know if there's any uh, studies or research that's been done on uh, the effects of uh, people that listen to media and, and having this fear message come into them. Also, I'm wondering why we do it. Uh, why do we listen to media that has kind of this fearful message when it doesn't seem to portray the worldview that I see on a daily basis as I'm uh, driving around? And wh- why are we so captivated by that type of news? Uh, thanks so much for answering my question. Uh, if you have time to it, I sure appreciate it, Mike. Well, Tony, that's a really thoughtful question, and uh, I wish I had time to look up studies before answering it, because I'll just go ahead and admit that off the top of my head, I, I don't remember reading any studies specifically on the effect of fear-based messaging in media and how that affects people. Uh, it would be, I would imagine, uh, kind of a vicious cycle. There's a reason we tend to have these really negative fear-based stories in our media. It's not a conspiracy. It's human psychology. Uh, in, in the States especially, the metric of success for any media is ratings. The more people listen and the longer they listen or watch or read or, or whatever uh, type of media you're involved in, uh, the more successful you are, the more funding you get, uh, the more employees you can have, the larger your organization can grow, the more sustainable your organization is. This is completely logical from a neuroscience context. We, we've evolved in an environment where we pay special attention to threats. Threats can take your attention away from everything. What can get your nose out of uh, you know Candy Crush if something dangerous is near you? Uh, now, I'm not saying, you know, prehistoric humans had candy crush but uh it's it's this idea that we're evolved to look out for things that we're afraid of and then you combine that with a media market in america which is controlled by just a few corporations uh through a process of consolidation primarily most media outlets are owned by one of a handful of companies and those companies don't have a mandate to serve the public good those companies have a mandate to be profitable Those companies have a mandate to return value to their shareholders by selling advertising dollars. And it seems right now what gets people listening most effectively is messaging about how dangerous and violent our society is. 
Of course, that's counter to fact. Uh, we'll talk about this a little more in a later question on the show this week, but uh, America is a relatively safe place to live right now, historically speaking, and globally violence is in decline. Now, there are uh, certainly terrifying narratives that are completely valid. Uh, rising violence in Chicago, which is contrary to the overall uh, rate of violence in the rest of the country, for example. That's very newsworthy. Uh, we should be talking about how frightening climate change is, uh, because historically speaking, that's a that's a very concerning trend and could completely eliminate the gains we've made in uh, global peace uh, and, and, and fighting global poverty. All those things, climate change could undermine those efforts. So there are things we should be concerned about. We're disproportionately concerned about them because media needs ratings to survive, even public media, by the way. More listeners equals more donors, right? Now, the, the incentive structure is not quite as direct. NPR uh, can be happy with a smaller audience that it wants a, an alternative narrative and will pay for it uh, in the form of sponsorships. But, you know, NPR is constantly doing pre- pledge drives because they're always worried they're uh, not going to make it, right? Every NPR affiliate is just trying to meet a budget, meet a quota. Uh, and that's that's economic alignment is what's happening there. Now, what can we do about it? I don't know. I mean, I've, I'm trying to do my part, honestly, uh, with Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist Podcast. We do talk about issues and, and topics of importance that are concerning, but we, we do try to avoid uh, a dramatic narrative, overly dramatizing things. We try to avoid uh, provoking your amygdala too much and inviting people into thoughtfulness. Uh, but we're also very, very small. <laughs> These podcasts are small and listener numbers compared to uh, dominant forms of media. Very small teams produce them. They're delivered directly to you through web hosting. So we don't have distribution and network costs like newspapers or magazines or radio stations or television stations have. And so we have a completely different economic structure. I, I think some media, especially new media, functions as an alternative to fear-based messaging that people get fatigued of. But, you know, you kind of also need to have some degree of economic privilege to seek out and enjoy uh, those forms of media. So even though the podcast is free, you've got to have a, a data plan. You've got to have some device that can play a podcast. You have to have the time to consume and contemplate a podcast. Uh, so all this stuff is quite complex. Hopefully I'll find a few studies for you to have in the show notes on Ask Science Mike. Dot com while Greg is editing the episode. Uh, but I think it really just comes down today to economics, which, by the way, remember, there's no such thing as the media. It, that doesn't exist. We speak of the media as some monolithic thing. Ownership of media is more consolidated than it's been, I think, maybe ever right now, <laughs> uh, at least in American history. But either way, it's not monolithic in execution. There's a lot of different people with different perspectives that contribute to media. They bring their own biases. Uh, but I agree that today a common, a common element is fear, and that really comes down to economics. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hello, Mike. My name is Michael Aguilera, and I live in Lawton, Oklahoma. As most of the questions start out, I would like to start by thanking you and your team for the refreshing perspectives you bring to faith and helping people like myself continues to grow into a more genuine faith. 
The past year has been one of deconstruction and reconstruction in many areas of my faith. In this process, I realized I did not have a healthy relationship with scripture reading. The practice of being in the Word was done out of obligation, and while it often did create a connection with God, it also put me in a place of frustration and shame when I found I couldn't practice doing it daily. The community I grew up in would preach the mantra of Jesus died for you. You can at least read his word every day. And if you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day, you would read it in a year. Think of all the other things you do for 15 minutes a day. These perspectives on scripture reading made me feel inadequate and stressed. I chose to purposely take a step away from the Bible and return to it when I felt I could do so out of a genuine and yearning heart. I am now at a place where I want to color my world with scripture again, but I don't really know how. I know this is not a one-size-fits-all question, but in your experience with the Christian faith, how might you recommend building a healthy scripture reading practice? I no longer want to try to read the Bible in a year or something like that. I want to learn about, understand the character of, and build a relationship with the divine. I understand that this is a difficult question because everybody has a unique relationship with God and different practices accordingly. I guess, simply put, my question is this. How would you, Mike McCarg, approach the Bible if you were doing so for the first time? Where would you start? Is there an order you would go in? How would you distill truth from the human influence on the scriptures And lastly, are there any non-Christian scriptures you would accompany the Bible with? I know you are just a nerd on a spiritual journey and not a pastor. Please don't feel the pressure of prescribing me something that I will follow without question. All I want is your insight as I continue to grow, as you have been influential in my growth as of late. Thank you for your time and dedication to the show and the people. Much love, Michael Aguilera. (laughs) Sorry to laugh, Michael. It is a phenomenal question. I just love that you said, I guess, simply stated my question is this, and then asked five questions. <laughs> so definitely get your uh, get your your time's worth of uh, of my answer on this one. You're right. I get hesitant about answering these questions, but you gave me the perfect caveat. I will tell you what I would do as a nerd and not as a pastor. Uh, and this, frankly, has really been my experience. When I came back to faith... Uh, My affection first was for God, my fascination, my affection, my affiliation. And then I kind of warmed up to the idea of Jesus as a metaphor, and then kind of started to mess around with what incarnation could mean, uh, studying, you know, writings of some theologians and some mystics. And it took a while for me to come to terms with the Bible in any meaningful way. Uh, when I finally did, it, you know, more than anything else, it was uh, just two people's work that that tipped me back towards the Bible having value. Now that led to a lot more study after that. Uh, but the books that that, that kind of brought me back was first uh, Pete Inns book, Inspiration and Incarnation, and then Rob Bell did a series on Tumblr called What Is the Bible uh, that I found very refreshing in its perspective. And then Pete Enns had another book called The Bible Tells Me So, uh, which was phenomenal. 
about ways we approach scripture and and that those works kind of took the pressure away from the bible being this thing we have to study to something i enjoyed studying and reframed it as the stories of people of faith in their encounters with god which i found to make it a completely more approachable book this is from that time how i first approached it there were two things i did one i tried to get a historical handle on the bible just something I work on doing all the time. I read a lot of popular and academic uh, Bible scholars. I try to have about an equal mix of people who analyze the Bible within the historical Christian tradition and people who are secular academics or non-Christian academics so that I um, continue to evaluate the Bible critically uh, and get a good historical understanding, the best as, as we can today, of what those authors were trying to say to their audiences. And my gosh, there's there's thousands of, of authors, so I, I you know I'd be reticent to even recommend anybody to you specifically. Uh, you know I've talked about some before on the program. Uh, and if you want some, I guess if you want somebody really critical, like Bart Ehrman is great, controversial but great. Uh, I like it when Karen Armstrong uh, writes about religious history and biblical history inside the faith tradition. I, I'm really digging N.T. Wright lately. He makes a lot more supernatural assumptions than I do, um, but he's he's a very good Bible scholar. So, there's, yeah, there's lots of people, uh, but that's only half of it. And frankly, that's not a daily discipline for me. It's certainly a weekly discipline, but I don't historically evaluate the Bible every day. But I do read the Bible every day, and I mainly read the Bible through Lexio Divina. So the historical grounding is to prepare me for the personal encounter with Scripture, uh, which is the Ignatian practice of the Lexio Divina. And I take a small passage of Scripture, often in conjunction with the lectionary. I read it three times. And the first time I read the passage, I just look for words and phrases that kind of jump out to me. And the second time I read it, and by the way, I take time between readings to kind of contemplate this. The second time I read it, I listen to those words and, and kind of go deeper into them, the ones that jumped out me at me the first time, and look for deeper meanings or deeper insights. And then the third time I consider what action those words may be calling me toward. And it's kind of a mixture of uh, prayer time and Bible study time. I'm praying over the words of the Bible in a really contemplative way. And I find it grounding and centering. And uh, the amazing thing about reading the Bible from that perspective, as opposed to like you're studying for some kind of afterlife exam or something, is the way you can wrestle with the text and the ways that you can challenge the text you know, when you read about, you know, in the, in the Torah, the, the nation of Israel moving violently into the promised land, you can take a historical lens and consider that as their expression of uh, God's blessing. And then, you know, a lot of times I turn that around saying, what, in what ways do I misinterpret privilege, cultural mandate, or things like that for God's blessing? Where, you know, where can I learn more about my own biases that way? And I find that process very illuminating, very helpful very calming. Neurologically speaking, it's it's a, it's a form of meditation. It's very beneficial. So, But I don't do like the guilt, I have to study my Bible thing today 
Um, I, I look forward to and savor those moments with equal relish uh, that I do my first cup of coffee for the day. It's just a way I ground and center my life. And I would not be very interested in a guilt-driven, uh, you have to study your Bible today. I, I think some people, if, if you've been through a deconstruction process and the Bible's just too much for a while, then the Bible's just too much for a while. It's okay. Uh, but it sounds to me from, from your question, you really are having some yearning, some desire to connect with God through the Bible. And I think, I think the Lexio Divina is a great way to do that. And uh, you can Google that, and I'll, I'll try to remember to put a link to that practice in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com. Hi, Science Mike. I have a two-part question for you, and it's set in the context of fear. My husband and I are recent deconstructionists and are now acutely aware of the vast amount of fear that surrounds our evangelical friends and family. This is particularly bothersome as parents who are trying our best to raise our children to be safe yet independent. So my first question is, scientifically speaking, are we as a society progressing morally in America and worldwide? And statistically speaking, is crime, particularly kidnapping, on the decrease? The second part of my question relates to parenting in context of this pervasive fear. What does science say about children raised by either helicopter parents or, conversely, those raised free-range? I'm curious how you handle this with your young daughters, who are similar ages to my nine- and six-year-olds. For example, my kiddos love to ride their bikes around our very small neighborhood with their friends, as well as walk to and from friends' homes. But I have some neighbors and friends who won't allow their similarly-aged children to leave the yard out of sight. Our children's safety is of utmost importance, but so is their developing independence. What's a parent to do? This is a fantastic question, one I have studied a lot and also is a potential landmine if I'm not careful. Uh, so first, I want to say I'm an expert in raising exactly two children, my own, and children are so different uh, that I'm always suspicious of people who offer you know, kind of blanket statements about parenting that they say apply to all children. I think I've said before on this program, you know, I think it's safe to say all children need love and acceptance by their parents. All children need some form of consistency and boundaries. All children need food, safety, shelter. Um, beyond that, I get really hesitant saying what all children need. And I also think as parents, uh, we tend to judge ourselves very harshly, like especially good parents, people who are who really want to do a good job parenting tend to be almost neurotic about how they're doing as parents. Um, and I have to say, I don't worry about that very much because <laughs> I know I love my kids and I know I'm doing my best. Uh, let's talk about some things specifically in your question. You said, are we progressing morally? as a society. And I would say sometimes, in some ways, things are getting better. In some ways, they are getting worse. Sometimes when I point to encouraging data points, like the decline in global violence, or the decline in domestic violence in the United States, or the decline in global poverty, uh, some of my friends, especially progressive friends, would accuse me of painting a Western utopian narrative in which moral progress is inevitable. No, 
Not at all. <laughs> I think it's very clear moral progress is not inevitable. We have been on a good trend for a while, but experts don't know why. Let's let's start admitting there. We don't no one agrees on why things in many ways have been getting better. And it is tenuous. Uh, I think the rise of Donald Trump in this country shows how tenuous moral progress is. Here we have this person who's kind of openly racist, sexist, xenophobic, homophobic, and like 42% of the country's response to this guy is finally, right? So I'm not painting an inevitable picture of moral progress. What I am saying is since World War II, statistically speaking, most things have been improving most things still have a long way to go. Uh, for example, our progress in domestic poverty is nowhere near as impressive as our progress in global poverty, which for me raises all kind of uh, racist and systemic issues since poverty tends to be uh, correlated with race. Roughly, I, I can already hear the counterarguments <laughs> without making a 70-minute episode to take apart that idea. Are we progressing? Sometimes. By the way, I apologize for the thunder. This is the only chance I have to record this show, so I can't wait out the thunderstorm in Tallahassee today. Now, in terms of kidnapping, kidnapping via abduction from strangers is very much on the decline. And kidnapping by family members is not declining as much. And a lot of a lot of things that are reported as kidnappings are effectively like nasty custody disputes. What that means for parenting is there tends to be a lot of paranoia in society about unattended children because of kidnapping. And that's not a really grounded fear. But like there is one reasonable fear. <laughs> if you want to have free-range kids you should be afraid that you could be reported to the police by your neighbors for being a negligent parent, <laughs> which has happened. There are some reports uh, in news media where people have let their kids you know, go a mile from the house or whatever, two miles, and uh, people have called the police, and in some cases, the custody of those children by their own parents is threatened. Which I think is pretty depressing because I have seen studies that show helicopter parenting does not aid children's development, um, their decision-making capacity. One thing that amazes me, and hopefully I can find this to put in the show notes because I may even be misquoting it, but if I recall correctly, uh, really safe playgrounds that we've built haven't decreased playground accidents. <laughs> like re- This is really counterintuitive stuff. But somehow, like when we eliminate risk, we eliminate people from developing or eliminate children from developing decision making capacity. So I would probably tend more towards the free range parent side. Here's how I do it I structure freedom that is developmentally appropriate. Like when my kids were small, like toddlers, they didn't play outside without my constant gaze. They didn't get too far, you know, where they could you know, get into danger before I could reach them and intervene. But as they've grown, I've tended to offer them more and more freedom with some accountability, trust relationships, discussion. What I've always tried to tell, let my children know is 
Let's talk about it. Any questions, anything you want to try, anything you want to do, let's just talk about it. No questions are stigmatized in my home. No ideas are stigmatized in my home. And I tend to be very honest. I give a reason when I give a rule. And those those reasons are subject to question and critique and discussion. Um, but I also set pretty consistent boundaries for my kids and explain what those boundaries are and explain the criteria under which those boundaries may change. I think it's important, and I think studies back this up, to foster an environment of discussion in your home, kind of rambling a little bit because it's such a tough question. Uh, and it could potentially get very broad. But I would say in general, giving your kids more freedom is better, especially as it's developmentally appropriate. And how do they demonstrate it's developmentally appropriate? Because they can handle the freedom. Now, my kids are also extremely advantaged. I mean, my wife, my kid's mom, uh, is in the home full time. When I'm not on tour, I'm an author who works out of the home. So my kids have like two parents at home to help them with homework. They have two parents very frequently available for discussions and for questions. That's a luxury many people don't have, especially in this economy. Uh, so that's why I'm always so hesitant to like make a hard stance about you know which one of these is better in general assuming parental availability and resources a little more freedom a little more free range approach appears to develop better decision making capacity and regardless kidnapping is is not what you should worry about with your children uh car accidents texting and driving those are things to worry about I, kidnapping just really statistically is not a thing we should concern ourselves about uh, unless you're like divorced, separated with a really strange relationship with your partner, something like that. Those are risk factors. But like a random person grabbing your child on the street is incredibly unlikely, statistically speaking. Our last question came in via email and it reads, Hey, Mike. So I just recently started listening to the show, but I have been listening to you on the Liturgist podcast for a while. My question is a little complicated because it involves a lot of factors and then a two-part question. I was raised in a conservative Southern Baptist church. I was taught all of the traditional ideas of sex being evil and bad and had signed all of the purity contracts as a young girl, mostly against my will. When I went to college, I was ready to party because my faith had never been mine. I was so dead to and fed up with church and spirituality. During this time, I was drunk a lot of weekends and had started to drink way too much. Then, on one night of partying, I was sexually assaulted by a guy that I was with. He was my friend, and I am so embarrassed to be one of a statistic of girls who are assaulted and don't press charges. But I knew there would be no conviction and more heartbreak if I pressed charges because of all the fault from me being there and lack of any evidence. I haven't drank since then, and I find myself getting anxious often. I don't want to eat. I have lost almost 15 pounds. And no matter how much I sleep, I'm always tired. I'm ready to move on. I have forgiven the guy, and I'm trying to find some kind of peace with the Almighty. I want so badly to get back to God and peace. I try to pray and read the Bible, but I've had no kind of encounter with the Almighty. 
So finally, getting to the first part of the question. How do you suggest I deal with the grief and shame that comes with the assault and the years in church and purity culture of being shamed for my sexuality? And secondly, how do you suggest I find some peace about this from the Almighty after being so numb and dead to any spiritual experience for so long? Thanks in advance. You find yourself getting anxious. You don't want to eat. You're always tired. These are signs that your body is experiencing the effects of trauma. It sounds like you could be suffering from depression, from anxiety. And those things would, of course, stem from the result of the trauma you have experienced and the shame that you take on. Your question provokes in me uh, outrage. It makes me angry. But it doesn't make me angry with you. It makes me angry that we as a culture, and yes, as a church culture, have told women that their sexuality is evil and so attractive to men that they are at fault if they are sexually assaulted. So the first thing I want you to know No one has any right to your body but you. No matter how much you had to drink, no matter what you were wearing, no matter what the circumstances were, the fact that someone sexually assaulted you is 100% their fault and 0% your fault. It is not your fault fault that you were sexually assaulted and my heart is broken for you so you have a lot to deal with you have this trauma associated with this shame i would encourage you to seek out a good qualified mental health counselor ideally not a conservative christian counselor but a secular counselor who can talk you through the process of grief and healing related to this horrific experience. And I wouldn't worry about feeling numb to God. From your question, it sounds like you feel numb to everything. And that's your brain in your body's attempt to deaden the emotional pain and trauma that you're experiencing. Prayer and meditation you may find helpful in your healing process. But don't place pressures or expectations on yourself. Don't judge yourself for how you feel in relation to God while you are recovering from something like this. Step one is, is to see someone. And to see them over and over and to talk through this experience. You know, you've told me you've forgiven the guy. Um, That's probably not something you can do once and be done with it. You know, I've been hurt much less than this by people. And there are people I have to forgive over and over and over because resentment starts to boil back up inside of me. 
So I have forgiven some people, but I have to continue to forgive them. And for a while, uh, you don't have to forgive. You never have to forgive them. When you forgive them, this is a process of, of freeing yourself, not of freeing them. Now, in terms of not pressing charges, you know, that's your decision. And the world today, we don't do a good job in our justice system with sexual assault. So your belief that the process may not result in justice is well-founded. One needs only watch the news for a few minutes to see what typically happens to men who rape. And the answer is often not very much. So I don't, I don't have any, uh, any advice for you there other than I'm grieved as a man and as a human being uh, that this is our response to sexual violence that we get so upset about so many things. Um, but rapists, especially uh, white male rapists, tend to have very light sentencing and convictions aren't common. I'm sorry this happened to you. I hope you can hear in my voice that my concern is genuine. That my grief on your behalf is genuine. And that to some degree I'm at a loss for words. I don't know what to say other than that I feel pain for you. <laughs> that I wish this never would have happened to you. And that I hope in the future that you are loved and supported. Not only through a process of therapy and healing. But that you... You find yourself in a community of people of God who will celebrate you as a person and as a woman who will not shame you for being a victim nor shame you for your body or your sexuality. We all deserve that and we so rarely receive it. We've been so shaped by these you know, puritanical views, these Victorian views of sexuality and American religion today, and they just do harm. So I want you to know it's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not dirty. You're not evil. And you are not impure. You are the very light of God in the world. 